0: What's up, YouTube? I'm Robert, and this is the Biker Bar. Uh, I can't say b one after that. That doesn't make any fucking sense. So, I um, already see a few people here showed up today. Brian T starting it out with a $5 super chat for the beer phone. That sounds like playing me. Um, so, tonight's episode is going to be um, hosted, hosted with me and Scott from Night Composite. Scott, you want to say hello?
1: Hey, guys. How you doing? <clears throat>
0: So if you guys aren't familiar with Night Composites, they're actually a a carbon wheel company. And actually I'll just let Scott go ahead and you want to give a little intro of the company and we can go from
1: there. Sure guys. So, hey, we're really happy to be here. I'm a little sad that uh, my beer is is out of my reach right now, but that's okay. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about Night Composites. So Night Composites is a uh, carbon wheel company that is based in Bend, Oregon. We're all uh, a bunch of industry veterans, uh, our founders, you know, Jim file was one of our founders. He started a, a little company called Reynolds. Um, Beverly Lucas is another founder. She was at felt and, uh, both her and Jim were at edge composites, which of course became envy. And then, uh, Kevin Kwan, who, uh, was a, a lead engineer at Cervelo, Uh, we, everybody kind of came together and, and decided that, um, you could, you could form, maybe, maybe have a different spin on, on how to make a, a good carbon mountain bike wheel. And, and, and four years later, uh, we're here with 15 products and, uh, a world cup win. And, uh, and, and we've, uh, we've actually won a stage at the Vuelta Espana as well. So we've come, come a, a long ways in a short period of time and, and we're just going to continue to grow.
0: Man, you guys really have a, a powerhouse
1: of people there.
0: So Basically, um, almost sounds like you cherry picked all the all the other carbon industries out there, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I think that the industries kind of cherry picked themselves, and then uh, you know the folks that uh, just always wanted to keep innovation at the forefront of, of really continuing to to progress the industry. Just like we see in suspension, just like we see in frame design, frame geometry. I mean, just because a, a wheel is is a bicycle hoop doesn't mean that that innovation stops uh, when you come up with a new material to use. So. Um, that's kind of where Knight was born out of because our our company's had a history with working with composites before, and and we kind of look at ourselves as like a third generation wheel company.
0: Right on. So, um, somebody somebody in the chat's mentioning that you got the SF Giants How are You you originally from the Bay Area, or
1: nope, I just love the Giants. Just love the
0: Giants. All right. Well, I won't I won't pick any bones with you there. I but- know,
1: I know, I know. You got a bunch of Dodgers fans that are probably on here, so uh, I'll just go ahead, <laughs> and nice and prominent for you guys.
0: Right on. So let's talk just, you know, um, the, the, the bike bar is, is a show that's on every week, um, five, 5 p.m. PST. And we like to have different people on the show and, and sometimes it's bikes and sometimes it's not, you know, I just kind of like to have a casual conversation and kind of go on from there. So maybe, uh, so people get a little, little, to know you a little bit. I think you had uh, an industry that you're, you were with, uh, another bike company or bike, Type of uh, yeah
1: so so i don't know how i don't know the the age group that uh that that is is kind of most of your viewership but uh way back in the day uh kane creek used to make bicycle wheels uh we made the chronos and the wham and uh, we had a we had a hub design called the the chrono the chrono hub design which w- it was you know radially laced non-drive side you know two cross drive side offsetting flanges and we had nipples at the hub so um, I was a part of King Creek back when, uh, back when they were, were doing wheels, they stopped doing wheels, uh, right around the 2006 time period. And so, uh, you know, that was kind of my previous industry experience. And then I got out of it, uh, actually started working on the medical side of things. And then, uh, about four years ago, I had an opportunity to get back into the bike industry when, when Jim and Beverly and Kevin started night composites. And, and honestly, I mean, I've been building wheels for, for a long time, 16, 17, 18 years of, of, of wheel building experience. And. I built thousands and thousands and thousands of wheels, and initially, when I came back to them, it was just to kind of help them out with fulfilling an order. And uh, out of that, in a very short period of time, uh, I was uh, I was managing product and and helping the company to kind of move forward. And um, the biggest the biggest thing to take away from that is, is is much like my time at Cane Creek, I was sold on the product. Um, the product speaks for itself; it stands on its own two feet, and and it was exciting to be able to work with. And and just coming from the perspective of working with composites back in the in the early 2000s when you know you get 20 rims out of a box and you would immediately lose the first four because they wouldn't pass QC so you'd have 16 rims left to build especially on the roadside and then you know the build tolerances were very it was just it was hard to build a really good strong wheel back during that time period and 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 at the same time like over the last 15 years you look at how carbon fiber and composites have become essentially the industry standard i mean we see them raced at the world cup level um santa cruz syndicate was the first one that actually started racing them on downhill bikes pretty regularly and and it really it really gave uh, it gave the material some credibility and 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 it's incredible that it took that long to kind of happen in the bike industry because we've seen composites used in, in aviation and in formula one racing so the highest level of performance you know military aircraft they've been using it for 30 or 40 years and, and so the technology has kind of started to trickle down now what we're seeing a lot of that in the bike industry, and at the same time, like we're seeing developments in things like suspension. I mean, the metric, the metric suspension stuff that's coming down the pike. I mean, the the quality of the forks that are coming out right now, and the quality of the shocks that are coming out. I mean, it's a really, really exciting time to be in the bike industry. And if you're if you're not innovative and you're just kind of going through the motions, man. You guys, it doesn't matter what the name on the down tube said or what the name on the side of the wheel says, you will get left behind. So yeah. um, it's exciting to be part of that innovative side of the industry and uh, and helping to kind of set trends that hopefully uh, you know other companies will either try to copy and, and mimic and, and, and build their businesses on or at the same time, you know, be inspired by something that another company is doing to kind of help us move our business forward
0: so what is the process to build a a carbon wheel i think you know is it yeah you, know, you don't just go down like pour pour the car in
1: the pot and the bond in the pot and and stir it, it together it's not like the- it's a, it's not like uh, making muffins in a tin that's for sure but the process right. is actually very is is actually very similar so um there's a lot of different ways to do it uh the way that we do it at night composites is we actually use a, a process called expanded polystyrene so um, just as an example for for your viewers, um, a lot of carbon fiber starts off with. You'll start off with kind of what's like a latex or just a just a vinyl bag, and you know you'll blow it up, you'll inflate it, and that'll be your mold. And it's like paper. Machine. So bag latex bag. bag is that like code for a condom or? it could be i mean it depends, it depends on uh, what what state your your company is based on I, mean, okay. I, I haven't heard of trojan wheels yet but i mean who knows maybe maybe one of your viewers will start that company after this conversation but uh, you know there's there's it's a good process a lot of good companies use it but it's it's it, it can be better so one of the things that ends up leading to maybe a wheel failing or even a bicycle frame that uses the same process failing is Um, You're limited by the amount of air you can put into that mold. So um, you you have a a predictable level of consolidation of your materials inside of a steel tool. And with our process, we lay our carbon fiber up around a preformed spoke bed. So it's the same consistent thickness in the spoke bed. And then by laying the, the carbon fiber up around what basically looks like our EPS is molded into something that's very similar to a surfboard core. So, because of that, we're able to get uh, consolidation of materials with four stages of of heat and and psi. We're able to go to much higher psi than a latex or, or a bladder bag is going to be able to do. Um, so- we're able to cure it during that process using high tg, low tg resins, and and in the end, you don't end up, you know, with with a rim that has voids in the rim. Any any uh-huh. void is going to be a weak spot that eventually impact or. Breaking pressure, or anything is going to find and expose. So,
0: like, um, just just so I'm clear and and they are as well. My understanding is that when you're doing carbon, you're kind of like laying down this little strips of like plastic paper in like a papier mache kind of.
1: You're you're laying down. Um, you're laying down sections of it and it could be it could be pre preg it could be you know based off the different sizes but it's you know it's it's multiple layers of overlapping and yeah. it wraps around this mold and then you know you add epoxy you add resin you add heat you add pressure inside of a tool and you know what comes out is essentially a frame that should or or a wheel that needs or or a handlebar that needs very little finish afterwards you know maybe a little bit of sanding a little bit of drilling for the holes or you know if you have di2 or you know if you're need a dropper post on your bike they'll do that stuff in post in post production and then you essentially do you you check it to make sure that it's within your tolerances and then uh you you paint it or you you gloss it or and you and you it to production so with us we uh our our process requires very little post-production rework which allows our wheels to be very consistent when they come out of the tool so if we do uh, like our 27.5 enduro wheel for example that's a a wheel that's you know 28 holes it's impact rated for 120 joules of impact it's generally used on full suspension mountain bikes guys that like to ride enduro um we benchmark that rim at 445 grams. If we make 100 of those rims coming out of three different tools that we have, most of the our tolerances are within 15 grams on each rim. And that's because of our process. We're able to get that consistency without having to have the variances or having to pull the rim out of the tool, having some holes that we need to patch so we've got to add epoxy to it and sand it down and cure it, which is going to add as much as 50 to 60 grams to a rim. So you'll see some rims that are out there that, you know the variance is it'll say it's a 500 gram rim, but you might get one that's 560, you might get one that's 440. So, the variance is it's not just about adding weight, in some cases, it could be less weight if you don't have lots of continuity and consistency within your process. And we'll see that. Like Santa Cruz is a great example, Santa Cruz frames they're very, very consistent when they come out of the tool. You can, you can go to go to their factory, go to their warehouse, you can pick up a hundred frames in within a particular model. And you're going to see a lot of consistency in the way that those guys do business. So, and, and they're not the only one, there's other, other companies in the industry that have also adopted real consistent processes, both with their mountain and their, and their road bike stuff. So how do you right. guys, first of all, I saw somebody ask also, if you, uh,
0: you do fat bike wheels, I know you do road wheels as
1: well, right? Uh, we do road wheels. Uh, good question on the fat bike wheels. Uh, you guys should come to Interbike to find out if we do fat bike wheels. If uh, uh, hopefully, hopefully that, uh, hopefully that uh, will give you an answer to your question. Well, I'll see you in Interbike then. So uh, okay. I will be there.
0: Uh, yeah. Moving on to that, though, but back to the consistency that you were talking about. How do you go about maintaining that consistency? Is it like you guys have to, I'm
1: assuming you do your production in China or something like that? Yeah. So, I mean, we do our production in Asia. So, uh, the best, in my opinion, within our industry, the most experienced workforce that's available is available in Asia. And and keep this, keep this in mind that, you know, I I hear some people sometimes they're coming down on, oh, you know, it's made in Taiwan, it's garbage made in China, it's garbage. The, the amount of available workforce that has experience working with composites, and carbon fiber, because of, the nature of our industry the fact that we have been doing a lot of our manufacturing overseas for a long time now we have the most experienced workers available to us by using either taiwan or china for our manufacturing process so we work with a factory that is based in taiwan they they do uh, we know the workforce we know the engineering staff we know everybody that uh that is involved in our process they understand exactly what our expectations are and because we have a mutual partnership with them where they know like, listen, you can't make decisions without looking at our benchmarks as kind of this is this is acceptable, this is unacceptable. It, it allows us to trust everything that's coming out of there. Plus, I mean, I've got a ton of frequent flyer miles because I've gone and I've visited. And then we also have a trusted trade agent that we work with who's also Taiwan based, who does random batch testing, pops in, uh, is essentially holding our manufacturers accountable to the benchmarks that we've set. So one thing that we've done that uh, that was a little bit difficult to put in place because the culture is is the culture was not in place when we started working with these guys is we want every 100 rims that we manufacture we pull it out of production we build it up and we retest it we retest it to all of our developmental standards of impact lateral stiffness radial stiffness durability we put it on the drum machine with a big bump bump stop on it and just keep pounding on it because we want to make sure that you know it's one thing to develop a wheel and test it and have it approved it's another thing to continue to maintain that consistency through the manufacturing process yeah. so, uh, that, that's definitely quite the process
0: i mean you're, you're definitely in i mean every hundred that's that's a. Uh, yeah, that's that's QC and QC and like a motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, that
1: basically, means, that basically means that every one of our rims gets goes through the QC process about once a month. So right. I mean, that's that's keeping that's keeping our, our sourcing of our materials, making sure that you know if I say that the rim's supposed to be made with Toray T seven hundred, Toray T seven hundred is what's going into that rim. And and you know that's something that you know with our engineering team and with our product team and with our QC and then and then also with our manufacturing partners everybody is on, is on the same level. The communication is the same, the, the expectations and the consistency are the same and the accountability is there. I mean, they know that um, we will not take delivery of the product if it does not meet our benchmarks. And so, you know, they want more orders, they want to make more money. So do we, and, and it's, you know, our, all of our, all of our stuff is, is our design. I mean, we don't, we are not an open mold company. We have designed, we have uh, come up with a layup schedule We've come up with the benchmarks for every single one of the of the products that you see that has Knight's name on it. So, you know, we didn't go over there. We didn't walk into a factory. We didn't say, hey, we got 120 bucks to spend on a rim. What do you have that's 29 inches, you know, around? And then, you know, pick something, come up with a sticker, slap a sticker on it and put it on you- the internet i mean i, I think I, I want to say i saw
0: a pink bike video where they did that like where they're like let's yeah. make a new bike brand and they went that's over
1: actually, I, lo- I love that video because it's 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 the reason why you see so much saturation in our industry is you know you can see you know i feel like every time i i look on bike room or bike radar or cycling tips i'm hearing about another brand that's being started and it's someone who you know everything from Daniel at Tumbleweed who worked at a, at a bike shop and he wasn't finding the bike packing bike that he wanted. So he made it, you know, he basically came up with an idea. He went to Taiwan. He, he sourced a factory. He, you know, gave them the design and, and they made him a hundred frames. And, you know, and I love, and I say that I love Daniel's bike. I think his bike is awesome. And it's because nobody does anything like what he does, but there's a lot of other companies that You know they've figured hey you know why why would i why should envy and reynolds and knight and easton and some of the other composites brands like why should they get all the all the play you know i can go over there i can source an open mold rim um and i can put my name on it and i can just you know have them assembled in taiwan or assembled in china put in a container ship to the united states and i could distribute out of los angeles let's say and call it a u.s made wheel or I could just get the rims, build them in the United States and call it a US made wheel. And it's it's not a US made wheel. It might be a US assembled yeah, wheel, but it's definitely not a US made wheel. But we shady. And and honestly, I mean you guys, you you viewers ask ask where your carbon comes from. You know, if if you see a good deal on the internet and it's a name brand that you're not seeing pretty, you know, well represented, like, you know, a specialized or, or an intense or a Yeti, you know, but it looks like a Yeti looks very similar to a Yeti. Trust me, not these bikes are not all created equal. And and no, the I, I, no, I, I fell, fell victim to
0: purposely buying some Chinese carbon in the past. And it was like, you know, you, I was looking for like some, like, kind of like arrow drop bars for my, my road bike. And it was like, the name brand ones were like 200 bucks. And then this one that looked exactly the same was like 30. And it, you know, it just really made me like, okay, well, what's what's the difference there? You know, like, I mean, it looks exactly like it. it's like, in my head, it's the same, oh, it must be just the same manufacturer. And they're like, you know, somebody told me, oh, those are the ones that just have a little variance in them
1: Man. or something like that. And there's, and there's places you can go right now on the internet where, and I'm not gonna say the company's name where, you can pick your drilling. You can pick your the the type of, of finish, whether you want UD, UD mat, 3K, 7K. You can pick whether or not you want decals on it. You can pick what color decals you want on it, or you can put no decals at all, and, and they'll promise to deliver your rims in the United States directly from China in less than two weeks, and you can buy two rims to be able to build a wheel set for under $400. So, you know, if you've got a nice set of Chris King or Project 321 or Hadley hubs and You've already, you know, and they're built onto an aluminum wheel set. You want to try carbon. The temptation to go there is strong. I mean, you can build a carbon wheel set for under a thousand bucks basically. And, and, but the problem is, is that you're, you might ride those things two weeks or you might ride them for two years, but I can tell you that eventually they're going to fail. And then you're going to see the customer service and the development side is not going to be there. You're going to call them up and be like, Hey, so these, uh. Wheels that I got from you, they broke and they're going to be like, yeah, wasn't it a great price that you paid for them? We can sell you two more for the same price, you know, and you're going to say, well, wait a minute, you know, and and at the same time, like, you know, you guys aren't just putting along on your bikes. You're riding them hard. You're going off drops. You're going fast. If this thing nukes underneath you and sends you flying 40, 50 feet down the the trail and you have an injury, now your liability and liability becomes a play. Uh, you're not going to have any liability from that company. Whereas, you know, most of the U S manufacturers that do carbon fiber, at least we all have liability insurance. And so there's, you know, we, we have some protection because our insurance companies have looked at our processes and said, yeah, we think that this is a safe way to do it. You're doing your due diligence. And so, you know, we're going to back you in case something happens. And that's, yeah, I mean, that, uh, that, a failure like that could, it could end in, in a
0: lot of ways and it could end yeah. in, you just scrape your knee or it could end in, you fucking you're you're sitting in a wheelchair yeah. for the rest of your life
1: yeah and i mean we we all know i mean we all know we've we've all heard stories of uh unfortunately we, we might not always directly know them but we've heard stories of of people who have had their lives changed by you know accidents on a bike sometimes it's a car versus a bike but you know in some cases it's you know just riding along and then you know here's something that happened but i mean the good news about our industry right now is that is that for the most part with the exception of a few outliers our industry is very safe the products that we're making are being pushed harder they're being ridden harder they're going faster the suspension's better the materials are better the manufacturing is better than i would say it probably ever has been in our industry whether you're riding aluminum or carbon fiber or steel Um, it's an exciting time to own a bike it's an exciting time to be buying bikes and bike parts and really specking your bikes out because you the, the hardest part is actually choosing choosing what you want you know do i want to set an or do i want to set a night wheels you know do i want a, the new fox shock or do i want to check out this new dvo or you know do i want this new cane creek helm fork uh because there are so many good choices and you know 10 12 years ago in the industry you had your clear front runner and then you had everything else and now we've got a lot of products that you know depending on how much money you want to spend you can get a lot of bang for the buck without having to break the bank and let's face it uh, as, I, as, I think it's key
0: you know now that there is that like that now that the products are let's just say you know a lot of them are on the same playing field I mean then what you're really looking at is you know what kind of customer service are you going to get what kind of warranty are you going to get how are they going to take care of you if you know something's not right or um or are they really going to be there
1: for you? You know what I mean? And I'm, and I'm glad you bring that up because I think that, uh, I think that now, especially with, um, you know, obviously there, there's people within the industry that, you know, they're, they're dedicated to going to bike shops. There's people that are starting businesses where they want to go direct to the consumer. But what that, all of that comes down to what all of that encompasses is good customer service. If you can, if you can be available, if you can stand behind your product, if you can, if you can help your customer, get the wheels that are that are going to best suit their purpose or or get any products a bike handlebar you know hydration pack that's going to best suit their purpose. If you can give them that information, you know, whether it's through your website or whether it's through, you know, good old fashioned picking up the phone and talking to somebody or going to your local bike shop and and having an advocate in there, be able to kind of, you know, preach on your behalf. But that customer service side of things is what's going to keep our industry going. And it's going to make the difference between shops or businesses or manufacturers that are still here five or six years from now, or who are gone five or six years from now. And I think that, You know, everybody, everybody that's in our industry has had that good experience, whether as a customer, whether it's buying a car, buying a stereo or buying a bicycle, we've all had that kick ass customer service situation where we set that, Hey, this is our benchmark, man. I had this one time where I got this coffee where this woman was like, you know, here's the 10 different types of cream I can put in your coffee. Which one do you want? You're thinking. Well, it was unnecessary, but I appreciated that you, that you asked. And, you know, that might make the decision between, you know, riding another mile further down the road to go get coffee from her versus, you know, doing the thing that's most convenient. I mean, It's like, like, like how do you, how do you pick your favorite bar to go have a beer at? You know, it's like the one that has the bartender that you like talking to. Right. You know? Yeah. In my, in my opinion, I always go for the slutty tailioni. That's kind of my, that's kind of my standard. (laughs) Like I like to start right there. And it's just like, well. You know, if you start with Slutty Tay Leoni and go from there, usually. The end of the pretty <laughs> All right. That sounds
0: that sounds like a good, good benchmark for me. Um, <laughs> yeah. One of the one of the people on the on the chat had asked uh, a question, and I don't even know what half of it fucking means. So we're going to have to explain it first to me and then answer their question. So he, he's asking, what's the typical spoke KPF on your Enduro rim? What's
1: KPF yeah. first? So, so so kgF is is a build tension it's a it's a measurement of tension on the wheel so it stands for kilograms of force so uh, we build our wheels to 130 kilograms of force and uh, the w- the reason that we build them to that higher tension is one our manufacturing process allows us to do that because we have really really high spoke pull through our spoke pull through is over 300 kilograms of force. Plus with so that, mountain means, vehicles, so that means that means it takes 300 kilograms of force to actually to pull, pull it through. Yeah, and uh, in most cases, and, and I'm going to tell you right now, the hub flange will fail before you'll ever get to 300 kilograms of force, or the spoke will fail before you get to 300 kilograms of force. So i going to um, say Jake, from Project
0: 321, we'll argue on the
1: the hub, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, It it depends. Yeah, it, 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 and it's all. It's like anything else. I mean, all, not, not not everything is, is made equal, but there's definitely some hubs out there that, that can handle that kind of I like, hate it when somebody says something like
0: that because all I want to do is fucking do it now. <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 right on. But yeah, we build to 130 kilograms of force. So a lot of rims, they go to like 120, 125 is co- kind of what's recommended. We do that extra five kilograms of force because the one thing that we realized was setting up tubeless tires Particularly on mountain bike wheels. I mean, some of these tubeless tires, you know, if you go with like an apex sidewall off of a Schwalbe, which is a really tough sidewall, you always inevitably end up with some settling after you mount that tubeless on the rim. Some of the loss of tension can be as much as 10 to 12 kilograms of force, depending on your wheel manufacturer. So, because we build to 130 and, you know, we've got some things within our build spec. We're losing maybe two to three kilograms of force in ride settling if the wheel is built correctly. If it's even tension on the drive side, you know, even tension on the non-drive side. It's usually, you know, if this is 100% is 130 kilograms of force. Our non-drive side tension with say a DT240 hub. Let's just use that as a a standard example. Is usually about 75% of that tension, but it still needs to be even. So, um, you know, if you do your adequate spoke prep, and we don't we don't build with anything strange. So, I mean, you can build with DT Swiss. You can build with Supreme. We don't have anything that's proprietary about our rims. We actually made them to be friendly for wheel builders to be able to build up with whatever spec they choose and and find them easy to be able to work with. The thing that we're pretty uncompromising on is if you build it to 110 kilograms of force, expect to start fatiguing and, and, and breaking spokes early and expect them not to be as as stiff or uh not not as not perform as well as as maybe you would expect. So um, you know, we're always happy to work with uh you know, of course we do our own building in houses. You lost me there just for a second. So if they build it to
0: 110, uh, you were saying don't expect it to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's,
1: it's it's not. Yeah. If you, if you you build it to too low attention, don't expect it to perform as well as we expect it, as we expect the wheel to perform because, you know, part of that build process is, you know, you might not have a wheel that's as durable. Uh huh
0: you guys do 130 right yeah we do 130
1: so 110 is going to be a lower spoke tension
0: yeah yeah okay i'm I'm tracking now so there was something interesting that you had brought up to me when i was chatting with you um that really kind of shocked me was you were saying that with the carbon wheels that the less spokes is actually better can
1: you explain that yeah, so uh, one thing that we've noticed is uh, through our through our impact testing is, you know the standard with working with aluminum, let's just start off with the aluminum just to kind of provide context to this is, um, when you started off with aluminum wheels, if you wanted to build a stronger wheel for aluminum, you had to use either a higher gauge spoke, you generally had to add more spokes and you generally needed to have like, instead of doing two cross, you would do a three cross wheel. So for like a touring wheel, you saw with most people that were on touring bikes, they ran 36 hole, three cross build, on whatever hub that you choose and you usually ran no more like no nothing lighter than say a butted spoke so, so just, real, just,
0: just real quick for people that are not familiar with the build process when he's saying cross it's like how many times the, the spokes actually cross each other like an x in the the build when you're looking at it
1: correct so yep
0: just, just so, that for, for the people that
1: are that are maybe new to mountain biking or new to biking in general and and are, yeah. are
0: we and,
1: and that's and that's definitely a good point. I'm, I'm i I always I always make the assumption that I'm talking to a, uh to 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 a somewhat educated crowd, and and that's actually I need to be better about just kind of trying to bring it down to if you've never if you've never heard of this before, here's where I should start this conversation. So I apologize for that. But oh, yeah, no worries. That's what I'm here for. I mean, with so what we found, yeah. So what we found with a lot of our testing, and and this is some testing that's been consistent. That's also been done with some other carbon brands that that I'm familiar with is. Um, because it's a insulated material, so carbon fiber is laid up and it's cured, and that's a material that actually deflects force. Um, aluminum is a material that tends to absorb. So if you want to, that's why, you know, I mean, raise your hand if you've bent an aluminum rim. I mean, I, I've bent an aluminum rim, you, you know, you hit a rock, you end up with a little bend, you grab your crescent wrench, you straighten it out, and generally you keep going. Well. With carbon fiber, carbon fiber tends to deflect impact forces. That's why, you know, some of you guys that maybe uh, some of your viewers that have ridden carbon fiber products, you might have had a wheel or, or a product that that tended to ride quite a bit harsh. Lots of, you know, not a lot of vibration dampening, so you end up getting a lot of feedback in your hands. That's considered to be a very stiff ride. There's not a lot of compliance to it. So um, with carbon fiber, we have found through our testing that actually with a wheel the more holes you drill in that wheel because of that manufacturing process you're actually weakening that carbon fiber because it's no different than having a void within that rim that doesn't you know when you don't get that material consolidation so you can build a wheel that's 36 holes three cross and it's going to be strong but you're actually your weakest parts of that wheel are going to be where you drilled those holes and so we found through impact testing uh, and we had third party impact testing confirm this for us is that we've actually found that a 28 hole rim that's built two cross two cross off actually has a shorter spoke with the quality of the hubs that are available on the market right now. They generally have a little bit higher flange. They're generally somewhat symmetrical because of the disc brake on the on the non drive side. And then just the the shearing forces of, of what goes into, you know, on high, a high engagement hub on the drive side. We're actually finding that that those rims tend to impact test higher for strength and they also uh, have better uh, overall endurance durability like on a like on a bump drum so versus a 32 hole also built with two cross or a 32 hole built with three cross so we've seen we've seen that the 28 hole is actually a little bit higher rated for impact before you start seeing a failure or you start seeing fatigue or loss of tension on the rim so so i just um, want to
0: I just want to be clear for people out there that are, you know, maybe you have the wheels that came on your bike, and you're thinking about building a wheel. Do remember, if you're a bigger guy and you're doing aluminum, go for the bigger hole count. It's better. Absolutely. Than, Absolutely. If you're doing carbon, then you want to go and 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 actually go for the lower count, which is but, you
1: know, yeah, yeah. There's definitely there's definitely a, a fine line. So when you start talking about road wheels, uh, you start talking about descending forces. I mean, you, you if you have a 20 hole radially laced front and you're 270 pounds, probably not going to be the right mix for you. Um, <laughs> you know, generally, That's going to be a lower profile rim. But, you know, f- also keep in mind all, with mountain is that there's another component to this and that's going to be suspension so that's something that we don't see on road bikes we don't have suspension on road bikes we also don't have the impact forces that you see on road bikes but with you know with most mountain bikes you either if you're riding a rigid bike then you're relying on your tires to be kind of your suspension so you're running lower psi if you're running i mean uh, an enduro wheel you're talking about something that probably has 140 to 180 millimeters of travel in the front you're looking to five six inches of travel in the back you're probably running anywhere from like a 235 to a 2526 tire you take all of that and you combine it with the system on the bike you're going to end up with something that's probably going to be pretty durable over the long haul so why would you want to overbuild the wheel in order to get some durability out of it and that was you know, that was kind of the initial thought that that was the hypothesis that we were able to confirm in testing. But you still need to have the minimum number of spokes to be able to build a strong wheel because there's there is a tipping point. It's like a bell shaped curve. And so that 28 holes in that enduro wheel that's 27.5. As you start to go down to lower spoke counts of twenty four hole, you start seeing kind of similar results that you see uh with something that has maybe 32 that's also two cross or even even less so there's really kind of a bell-shaped curve and it's related to the material and and i I just want to i want to clarify this is specifically with the testing that we've done with our wheels so factored into that is going to be our manufacturing process the way that we the way that we manufacture our rims the you know the type of material that we use to be able to build our rims um that also factors into that durability that we're talking about. So I mean, well, we've had- than, so what you're
0: saying is it could be different with an Envy wheel. It could be different with, you know, a, a Derby wheel or something
1: be- like that. Absolutely. And, and if you look at most of the at most of the higher end uh, carbon wheel manufacturers that are out there, at least those that are accessibly based in the United States, just about all of them do uh, most of their mountain bike wheels to really similar drillings to to what we do. You know, they may offer a higher drill count, but most all of them do 28. I mean, I know the big S out of uh, Morgan Hill, they do a lot of their stuff and actually 20 and 24 for their mountain bike stuff. So especially like on their, some of their racing mountain bikes, which, you know, I don't know who races mountain bikes anymore, but the people that still do, uh, you know, that want that really lightweight cross country wheel, you know they're they're risking you know 20 and 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 24 on like their control SL, which is a 370 gram uh, lightweight cross country rim that you see raced on the World Cup circuit. So, you know, not my cup of tea as far as that wheel is concerned. But you know, I like having 28 spokes. I've, I've had really good durability with it. I think uh, you know when you start seeing dyno hub companies and and Roll Off doing 28 hole hubs, I think you're going to see more people realizing that when you use something like a composite material that you don't necessarily need to overbuild the wheel in order to still have a strong wheel. I mean, tension still uh, needs to be even, still need to do all the other stuff you would with any other wheel, but you don't need to overbuild it as far as the material is. Concerned. Anybody can go on YouTube and take a look. There's videos out there. Like if
0: you have a, a an aluminum wheel, I talked to you about this before and it has no spokes on it and you just lean your weight on it. It will, it will fold right in half. And you put a carbon hoop, with no spokes on it, you can put one in each hand, and you can lift your feet off the ground, and they're not gonna—they're not gonna buckle.
1: So, I yeah. mean, it's definitely a. What big, was, huge, what was uh, one of the things that I did with a rim that we pulled off the rack with you standing in front of me when you were visiting? Do you remember what I did with that rim? Do you remember me smashing it on the ground?
0: Yeah, yeah, you did. You bounced it around the ground. I thought you were, i was like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, then you were like, here you can have this one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I was like, so this is your wheel. Yeah. <laughs> So, and you know, I do want to ask you about, and it's probably, you know, some, some people don't know when, when people are looking at, at carbon wheels, there's these measurements that people are always talking about. Is that inner or outer and what do those numbers mean in, in that circumstance?
1: Okay. So with any, with any bicycle wheel, and, and it seems like uh diameter has become uh has become a, a bigger part of the conversation in the last. Oh, he locked up.
0: Uh-oh. Well, welcome to the internet. This is the wild, wild west. Is it just me? Let's see if I'm down.
1: Whoop, move
0: Do this over here. Nope. Just him, huh? <laughs> he gone. <laughs> Let's see if he uh, maybe maybe he doesn't. Yeah, he dropped off my thing too. See if he gets back in here in a second. In the meantime, I'll, I'll just be the entertainment for you guys. <laughs> Looks like he's back. There we are. Yeah, Dude, I don't know what happened. I don't know either, but I was like, well, cuz I'm just drinking by myself now.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sorry right. about that. Yeah, it's well, I am I am in Baker City, so, you know. Yeah, yeah no worries. So you were saying, maybe I need to send, maybe I need to send somebody downstairs to put some more quarters in the machine. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, we yeah, were talking so an outer width. Yeah. So, so inner width is, is generally related to the inner part of the rim. And then the outer width is going to be the outer part of the rim. And so that's going to be, so like, just as an example, our enduro rims are 30 millimeters in internal width. Our external is going to be uh 36 and a half for this. So that means that you have about three millimeters of, of sidewall thickness. And so you look at the inner width because you want to look at the size of your tire, as far as how the o- overall profile is going to be. So if you're running like a 2.4 tire and you've got uh, a 31 inner width, you can look at how the inner the inner part of the bead is going to sit on the tire. So that's going to be like this. The outer part of the bead is actually going to give you that shoulder just above the bead where it's going to rest. And then you look at the overall shape as far as like what kind of traction you want to have. So as an example, like a, like a Hans Domp from Schwalbe, that's a fairly common tire. It's been around for a number of years. I could tell you that if you take a Hans Domp and you put it on a Stans Flow rim, It's going to look very different than uh, if you put it on one of Ray's Derby DH rims that's, you know, a 36 millimeter internal width. You end up getting a pretty significant change in the amount of available traction that you have from that tire. So the internal width question is based off the type of riding that you're going to do. So if you're a cross-country racer who's looking to maximize speed and has low tread, you might run a really narrow and by really narrow i mean like a 22 and a half internal width maybe a 27 external width with like a 29 by 2.1 tire or you might take that same rim you might put it on a gravel bike and you might run 700 by 35 or 700 by 40 on your gravel bike but at the same time like you know i'm riding a, a plus size bike right now with a 3.0 tire on it and i have so knight makes a rim uh called the 27.5 Plus, and it's 45 millimeters internal width with 51 millimeters external width, I choose that rim for that 3.0 tire because, like, I'm running. What am I running right now? I'm look. I've got WTB Rangers on my on my bike right now, and those Rangers. In order for me to get the maximum amount of traction, I need to have at least 45 millimeters of internal width to space that bead out far enough to be able to square that traction off. So, um, really choosing. The bike that you're riding, choosing the type of tire and the size of tire for your riding that you want to use, um, and then picking the rim and and also just making sure that you got room for it to fit in your frame, because that's a mistake I see a lot of people making right now is um, they've got an older bike, like a Turner 5 spot, and they try to slap a 2.5 tire in that thing, and it ain't happening, I can tell you. Um, yeah, until yeah. David starts making bikes that have boost spacing in the rear You're going to be pretty limited on what kind of tire you can put on a bike like that Doesn't make it any less capable But you're, de- you're definitely going to be limited on your tire size So internal width is it, it seems
0: like some of the, the the bike companies are really starting to build that way I mean, like Santa Cruz this year I honestly had absolutely no reason that I wanted to get rid of my Bronson And then they released their new frame this year And it's like, you yeah. it all the way up to two eight on it and and i think you know what they're doing this is my assumption is you're you're making a bike that can that 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 can kill a quiver you know so you can put a put a a a two eight wheel on there when you want to and then you'll be able to put you know a two three on there when you want to for that that you know i think what then in the future is the suspension is going to change in a way where on the fly you can actually make your bike seem like it's a, a three inch bike. And then on the fly,
1: Hey, it's time for us to get down. And now it's
0: a inch bike. You know,
1: it's, it's coming. There's going to be some metric suspension stuff that's coming down the bike pike that you're going to have three different presets. It's going to be like having three different drivers for a car where you get in, you hit a button on the dash and it moves your seat and steering wheel where you want it to be, where you're going to be able to preset your suspension at least on the shocks to where if you're in more of a pedaling platform you can flip it to that and it's going to be you know you're going to reduce the bob if you if you're going to be just trail riding you might flip it to another setting that's going to be more conducive for trail if you're at a bike park and you know you changed from your 27 by 2.8 tire and now you put on a uh, 29 by 2.4 you might flip it to that third setting because you're about to get gnarly on something that's a little more flowy and park oriented. So, um, I agree with you. I think that a lot of bike companies are now starting to offer stuff where you can run two different wheel sizes without changing your bottom bracket height or your overall length of your bike. Um, a lot of the shocks that are and suspension that's coming out is, is kind of being built with that in mind. I think that having one by component groups, and, and going to that boost spacing is making it a lot easier to be able to accommodate multiple sizes of tires. And, and frankly, not everybody has a garage to have six or seven bikes in it anymore. So, I mean, if you're one of those lucky guys, then that's great. But if you're not one of those lucky guys, you're going to be pretty... You're going to look for a bike that can do a lot of different things because there's a lot of different variables uh, in the type of riding people can do, and they don't want to they don't want to be left out in the cold because they don't have the right bike. So they're going to look for a bike that can do a lot of things, and you know something like like uh like the chameleon that you and I were talking about. I mean, I think that I think that Santa Cruz's hardtail, being able to run a 29 inch wheel or being able to run a 27.5 plus with, you know, pretty big fork on the front, like that's an incredibly capable bike for someone who can do just about everything and wants to own a hardtail, doesn't want to mess with having to have shocks rebuilt. So um, I think, I think we're going to see more. My opinion is we'll continue to see bikes like that coming onto the market and uh, kind of being the standard by which um, most enthusiasts.
0: You know, they have to do that. You have to make these newer bikes like a quiver killer because the, the cost of the bikes are going up so much. I mean, yeah. Back in the early 2000s you could have five bikes but they were only two thousand dollars a piece that's you know? right. <laughs> so it's like now it's like you you buy you know let's just say a, a, a entry level mountain bike that's like you know kind of really getting you into the, the the fairly decent quality is at least three grand
1: you yeah. know I
0: and mean, at five to six grand you're getting like, yeah this is this is a pretty like almost you know top line bike and then that that you know diminishing return after that 6 grand to get to that like 9 or 10 it's like okay you know maybe you just ride the other the 6 grand bike and you're going to break some derailers and stuff like that and, yeah. and you can upgrade those as you go but um to to be you know like so let's just say the middle of the road there is 5 grand i
1: mean yeah. get to have three bikes that's 15k i mean that's you know yeah i mean i i I think that the bang for the buck between five and seven thousand dollars is is pretty incredible you can buy a lot of bike and and even those three thousand dollar bikes like those three thousand dollar bikes now like with some of the some of the trickle down on some of the components from shimano and shram I mean those three thousand dollar bikes now are better than the four thousand dollar bikes were five years ago and and when when those were like at the high end like i mean i look at some of the stuff that SRAM is doing right now or even shimano like slx brakes i mean slx brakes you see on bikes that are you would classify as inexpensive but i mean grab an slx great brake, brake and then you know grab an xtr brake and and modulate them and ride them for a while it's a very, very slight difference in weight, and and I'll tell you, performance-wise, there's there's not a lot of there's not a lot of variance between those. So, you especially know, if, know, if you end up with the fifty five hundred dollar bike that has SLX on it, like don't be sad about your brakes. You you ended up with a pretty good brake set on your bike.
0: Yeah, and and I'll just say that to be clear,
1: especially if you're a lighter guy. I mean, it's it definitely different different game if you're a big dude um, yeah, I'm a hundred I'm 150 pounds so I can pretty much yeah. play on just about any break that I want and I That's don't have information
0: really for you
1: <laughs> yeah no no they, de- they definitely uh, they, they definitely aren't but I mean I've got a buddy that I ride with I mean that you you got to meet on your trip to Bend I mean Jake Jake rides Uh, you know he's he's uh, he, he carries a little vegetarian weight with him and uh, he 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 gets pretty rowdy on the bike, and, and obviously his component selection is going to be very different than mine. But you know, he does not ride the most expensive stuff that's out there. He rides stuff that can handle the amount of stress that he puts on his equipment. And he chooses, he chooses his build spec based off of that. So it's not just about, okay, I'll take the most expensive thing of that's on the market because you know I can get it because I'm in the industry. It's it's more like actually catering his build uh, specifically for the type of riding that he's gonna do and and also being honest about uh, how much load he's putting on the bike himself versus the load he's putting into the bike, as far as the type of riding that he's doing. So yeah, I, tell you, I, I think
0: that's something that you, you have to be cognizant about, you know, and, and in some cases, a more expensive one isn't necessarily even better. I remember when I was like learning about like the different like ranges of like Shimano, for example, and somebody gave a perfect example that I still use today. and. Like what's the difference between the XT and XTR? Like the XT one's gonna last. The XTR one is more expensive just because it's lighter. Yeah. You know, so go with the XT. You know, if, if you're really worried about the difference in weight between the two, fucking shave your beard, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Most yeah. people, most
1: people won't uh it, it's it's not a measurable gain for it, that's a measurable gain for 1% of the population that's out there for the other 99%, you're just spending money to spend money. You're not actually getting a performance benefit from it. So yeah, buy it, like save the money, save the money, get something that's going to last you a little bit longer. And, and chances are you're going to be just as happy with it as, uh, as you would be if you, you know, chosen to spend more money. So, uh, what do you think about, uh, some
0: of these different, like, uh, Drivetrain systems and and maybe how that would affect the the wheel itself you know if if let's just say for the sake of conversation if bikes went completely to gearboxes and you didn't have to worry about that cassette and stuff like that on the side of your wheel would that change the way you guys engineer your wheels
1: Yeah. I mean, the things that are going to, that are going to affect the engineering is, I mean, when we look at radial loads or we look at lateral loads, or we look at, you know, how we tune the wheel for how the wheel is going to be ridden, um, really how the bike and how, you know, we look at the wheels as like as being part of a system. So it wouldn't just be the gearbox system. The things that that I think we're going to warrant more consideration are, um, you know, over in Europe, the e-mountain bike is, it's nuts. I mean, Eurobike this year, I'd say 70% of the biggest booths that we saw there, we're having rowdy, full suspension, long travel e-mountain bikes, and they are definitely a way of life over in Europe, and and, and they're gaining accessibility in the United States because we've got the population that we have, and you know I think in the U.S. they're they're going to be the last place to take off, but but the industry isn't limited to just the United States, so you know the considerations in doing a a carbon fiber e-bike wheel are going to be very different than than what we're going to do just because of the 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 amount of forces on the hubs those e-bikes they accelerate so quickly so actually most of the stress is going to be on the spokes and actually on the driver and on that hub and obviously that's going to resonate outwards towards the wheels for us because of the way that we manufacture our wheels we're going to maybe have to change our our layup schedule a little bit we might tune them a little bit differently um based off of that quick acceleration and deceleration but I, i think that that the 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 stress for people is actually going to be on the hub manufacturers and on the spoke manufacturers much more so than the the tire and the rim manufacturers uh, for systems like that but yeah i mean we've we've got uh customers that that ride pinion system bikes uh, like the zeroed uh Tiniwa is is a good example um those guys uh, neil at cycle monkey he distributes those bikes um in the united states and, and we've got some customers that own those bikes that ride our 27.5 enduro rims on that and I mean the the performance is I don't really personally I don't like the the play in the pinion gearbox but um, you know we're not seeing any additional uh, load on the rims because of a gearbox system and, and 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 because we're an innovative company if you know that crazy ceramic speed you know chainless derailleurless drivetrain if ten years from now that's the that's the norm on on all bikes that are around. You know, we'll adjust. We'll we'll amend. We'll see kind of what that does to the wheel, what that does to the hub and the drive system, and and us, and I'm sure every other wheel manufacturer in the industry will make changes uh, to accommodate and and hopefully accelerate uh, the the development of products like that. I mean, this is a very malleable industry. We respond to trends and we respond to change pretty quickly. Um, and 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 most most bike manufacturers, most component manufacturers. You know they don't wait four or five years uh, to finally wait and see if something's gonna something's gonna stick. We can bring things to market pretty quickly, so we're able to respond to trends faster. We're able to test them and bring them to market faster. Um, and then if something doesn't stick, we can let it go away and move towards another trend, or or even try to set a trend or set a standard um, if we if we see a hole available that we can try to fill. Interesting. Yeah, so, it's not, it's not going to yeah. change this unless we need it to change. Yeah.
0: Uh, somebody here is asking uh, what's the difference in fibers and resins that can be used in a layup?"
1: man that's a that's a whole nother uh, that's a whole nother conversation so uh, there's 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 different just like everything else just like uh, if you go to the store and you buy buy sheets for your bed you'll look and you'll say this has a hundred count cotton this has you know 300 thread count this has 800 thread count um, well, carbon fiber material is the same way. There's different levels of, of composite material based off of how um, that material is going to be used. So, um, you know, if you've ever flown on a, on a Boeing 777, um, 777 has two engines underneath the wings and under each wing is the single engine and the air that comes into that engine has fans that move that air through the blades. Well, those blades are made out of carbon fiber. It's Torre t 700 same thing with the leading edges on those wings, that's Torre T700. That Torre T700 is probably not gonna be the same material that's used to make something else that's within, that's that's like, a, like an intake on a Subaru. That's probably not gonna use that same material for something as simple as an intake on a Subaru. You're probably gonna use something like 3K so, so usually the type of material that you use is gonna be based off of how the product is gonna be used by the end user. What's the level of stress? What's the load? What's the demand that's gonna be placed on the material? So you know, that's the difference between you know, maybe the 100 count sheets and the 600 count sheets. Well, it's the same thing with the carbon fiber. And then you know, the resins, uh, they're based off of um, you know, how much weight you wanna put into something, uh, the type of performance, how you wanna tune the wheel uh, as far as, as the layup. So both the material and the resins can factor into, you know, a wheel that's going to be more stiff or something that's going to have a little bit more compliance. So everything works as a system, uh, whether it's the frame, uh, w- whether it's a handlebar, um, whether it's a bicycle wheel. You know, the material that you use is going to be based off of what you want from a performance standpoint from that from that wheel or from that product. It also makes a difference in what that product is going to cost. So yes. All of you can get on Google right now, you can Google carbon bicycle wheel and you're gonna see wheels that are, that are you know 300 bucks, 400 bucks. I mean, even a brand name like Track has a wheel set that's 660 bucks and it's carbon fiber. Well, they also have wheels that are $3,000. So ask yourself, what's the difference? If, 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 if those $600 wheels are good enough, why are they still making those $3,000 wheels? It's because the $3,000 wheels are what you're going to see Trek world racing, racing on what you're going to see, Sega Fredo racing over mm-hmm. in Europe. It's a higher level wheel because it has a higher level of material and a higher level of durability. So you definitely, you get what you pay for with components and, and especially with wheels. So, um, you know, we're, we're not the most expensive wheel in the world. We're actually not anywhere close to it. We're kind of in that mid level. Uh, we do spend, uh, we do spend a fair amount of money on our development and on our tooling and on our processes. But we also know that, um, there's, there's a lot of margin to be made on there and and we're not just making margin because we have a ton of overhead. We have lower overhead. And so we make our, we try to make our products accessible to customers so that they can get out and they can enjoy them and they can ride them and they don't feel like they need to take out a second mortgage on their house. I would rather you, I would rather have you spend, that thou take that thousand dollars that you save on buying wheels from us and come up to bend and ride some of our rad ass trails that we've got up there and drink some of our beer and come and visit our town versus um you know spending an extra thousand bucks just to have something that has a different name on the side of it so that's 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 kind of our philosophy on that is you know you don't need to spend four grand on wheels unless you really really want to but chances are the person who spends four grand on wheels they probably aren't driving a dodge you know what i mean they're probably driving they're probably driving something else so yeah yeah well you guys definitely have some good
0: beer i did maybe partake in a little bit of that too much and then um <laughs> It's good to hear, good to hear. Then, uh, Did did get a hold of some of your your riding riding up there as well um somehow or another i got talked into a shuttle that was like um like mountainees from the very beginning so that that was pretty interesting right Somehow, sounds planned.
1: like Jake might have taken you on farewell. So,
0: oh yeah, it was like, oh yeah, it's only gonna be like fourteen miles and six hundred feet of climbing, and instead it was like twenty miles and fucking sixteen hundred feet of climbing or some bullshit like that. So, yeah. every every hill we came to, he was like, oh, I forgot. That's the there is this one too. Um, <laughs> but it was, you know what? Any day on the dirt is a good day. So I'll take that. You know, eight days a week over a freaking right. you know on my regular day job. So, um, right I on, man. Absolutely. so there's a shit ton of stuff out there being made out of carbon nowadays. And, um, from your perspective, somebody that works in that industry, do you think there's some stuff that just shouldn't be made out of carbon?
1: Yes. Do, do you think that, that I'll just, I'll just, of- I'll just, I'll just leave, I'll just leave it at that. Yes. <laughs> I think that, I think that there's, uh, you know, I, I just saw a carbon fiber mountain bike pedal and um, I don't think that's necessary. I think that it's gonna be expensive and uh, I don't necessarily think it's gonna be any better than some of the aluminum stuff with the you know steel axles that's out there as far as durability is concerned. Nah. Um, I think personally carbon fiber hub shells on bicycle hubs are kind of law of diminishing returns. I know there's some companies that do them and they do them well. I don't think it's necessary as far as uh, strength or weight savings. There's you're spending a lot of money on something that you're not necessarily improving your performance with. So I mean, specifically within the bike industry, there's, there's a few other things, but I'm not, I'm not going to get into, I'm not going to get into it because I have respect for anybody who tries to innovate and tries to bring new products into the industry and tries to move our industry forward. So whether I choose to partake and consume in it is, is, is a personal choice, but, but I, I definitely appreciate people that, try to do stuff a little bit outside of the box now it's up to them whether or not they make money on it that's their business but you know Mm -hmm. i I definitely think there are things that that we don't necessarily need to have made out of carbon fiber but same thing could have been said for about titanium but i love titanium so
0: somebody on here asked can you ask how much weight is saved from carbon and high-end aluminum rings and i think that question and and i i'm not sure because he follows it up with something else but for me I don't necessarily think it's always about weight with carbon to aluminum, and I think some people do look at it that way. I think, for for me, it really has to do with that wheel not flexing and how it changes your ride characteristics more than the weight. Because I think you can get wheels that weigh the same now,
1: right? Yeah, absolutely. You can. So then he says… You can also get… Yeah, you can also get but I mean you're also gonna end up with an aluminum wheel that you know is is gonna absorb a lot more versus Deflect so you're not gonna end up getting the same amount of responsiveness. You might have an aluminum rim That's 440 grams. You might have a carbon rim That's 440 grams and these two wheels are gonna ride very very different So if you just look at the numbers and and you don't look at the overall ride performance you're gonna if you if you were to be neutral and just appraise both of them that carbon wheel is going to ride a lot more responsive it's going to be stiffer you're going to be able to get more out of the tire you're going to be able to you're not going to be limited by the material within the wheel whereas with the aluminum wheel in some cases You could hit a rock wrong and now suddenly your 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 rim is not going to hold the beat of your tire anymore or you may end up with some tire flop because the material of the aluminum will deform when you really push the tire through the turn because you have really firm sidewalls on your tire because you're running like a tough downhill tire so in most cases you're going to see a pretty different ride characteristic between the two materials i mean if aluminum was the greatest material in the world and it was equal to carbon fiber most of the industry would still be making high-end stuff out of aluminum. The fact remains, it isn't. All yeah. of the high-end stuff yeah. we're seeing in the industry is all being made out of composite because composite has proven to be a more durable, more performance-oriented material than aluminum. And that's that's industry-wide. That's, that. not, that's not manufacturing. That's industry-wide.
0: I hate when I see
1: people like talk about the
0: carbon fiber with frames or wheels and they're like, Oh, well it, you know, it breaks and go look at the failures. And I'm like, yeah, dude, but also go online and look at freaking just like, uh, yeah. just bike frame failure videos on YouTube. And yeah. you can see half the fucking videos are aluminum and half of them are carbon. It's like, if yeah. that that shit's going to happen. I mean, yeah,
1: it, fail, failures, failures occur whenever you ride and you and you push something failure is going to occur no matter whether it's it's a steel material, whether it's a composite material, whether it's a, um, you know, whether it's an aluminum material. And it could be because of manufacturing defect. It could be. Well, Side of its intended uh, purpose, like, you know, f- remember that video where the guy uh, I think that was on Pink or, or or somebody where. Bernard Kerr or some badass downhill free ride guy went to Walmart or Kmart and bought some clapped out Something or another and he took it down a line at Whistler And I mean that thing was gone by the time he got to the bottom and it's like, you know But he pointed out and at the very at the very end He pointed out that his race frame was made out of the exact same material as that bike He had bought for 200 bucks at Walmart or Kmart or whatever. He said this is the same material and he said not all aluminum is created equal or not all steel is created equal and um you know even with a rider with his skill he managed to mangle this yeah I, it's it's a great video uh,
0: if i remember correctly that
1: there there was a youtuber that did it his name's paul the
0: punter and i know there was a oh, I, I saw that one that one was horrible yeah. <laughs> that one was that there, one was that there was one the guy too that did did a it wasn't a carbon bike um, Phil Metz did one too where he took like a Walmart bike down a downhill run and that was fucking hilarious. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, there's an Italian guy who every year he takes his uh he takes the bike that wins the Tour de France. So like the last couple of years it's been a Pinarello and he's taken it, uh he's taken it to La Bresse and ridden it down the 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 kind of the they have this like it starts off it's like a kamikaze style downhill and he does it on this road bike. It's a hysterical video, but he destroys this thing. I mean, half the time Half the time, the handlebar—the handlebars—break from crashing because he's flex. You know, he's flexing this bike so much, the handlebars <laughs> actually break off in his hands, and he's just like, well, you know, still. He's like, he's like the Tour de France winning bike has still not been able to make it down La Bresse. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what I love about the internet. You uh, would think those things would be like. I mean, I don't understand how he even gets it. Like, you would
0: think those things would be selling for like a hundred thousand dollars to some fan or something like that. He's
1: just yeah. out. There. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I, I think it's, I don't think it's the actual Tour de France winning bike, but I think it's basically an exact <laughs> replica of the one that wins. But yeah, I, you know, I, but the funny thing is, is like, that's what I love about the internet because guys wake up in the morning, and they're like, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to fucking grab a Pinarello and I'm going to try to take it on this ca- kamikaze downhill just to see, like, just to see what's going to happen to it. This is the most capable road bike in the world, but yet here, we're going to expose it for everything that it's not. So that's what I love about the internet. Uh, Yeah.
0: And then you also get to hear a fat guy make a complete ass out of himself in about 10 seconds ago. So that was fun. (laughs) Um, So the other thing that the guy was asking when he was talking about the
1: carbon and aluminum, he says, is it the stiffness of the wheels that really makes the power transfer to the ground? sometimes it could be tire choice sometimes it could be suspension setup on the bike um, you know responsiveness and stiffness are definitely two different things because you have radial stiffness and you have lateral stiffness um, it could be the difference between having a quick release and having a through axle system so you know it, it's and, and it also depends on the rider weight how the rider is going to use it generally because carbon fiber is a, a material that that is is consolidated uh, versus extruded, you tend to naturally have more stiffness out of a carbon fiber material than you will out of aluminum. So it allows you to run a much wider range of tires and actually get the intended performance out of the tires, whether you want more compliance or whether you want stiffer sidewalls. Um, aluminum, you generally don't get that same kind of variance. So um, it, it's 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 not as simple as just, well, this material is stiffer than that one. Um, it But it does allow you carbon fiber allows you more consistency in being able to tune what tires and what suspension you you, how you set your bike up as far as the type of predictability and your performance that you're going to have because you could take one you could take one aluminum rim you could put five or six different tires on it put it on the same bike and you're going to get five or six different responses out of that out of that bike and with carbon fiber you could put those tires on there and it's going to be based off of now you're now you're tuning your psi now you're checking the psi and your shock now you're looking at, at kind of how you tend to ride, you know, where's the tire going to break loose versus where it's going to hook up. And you're able to just kind of establish more consistency with the carbon fiber material in the wheel versus what you're going to get out of something that's in aluminum. So
0: this is the other thing coming out of thought of, you know, since you're in the industry of the the wheel, the wheel industry, can you talk to people about, you know, what the benefits actually were of going to boost and what the how that has changed maybe how wheels are because i i I think for a lot of guys they may have a little bit of an older bike that doesn't have a boost wheel and and you know some of the like like the, the the six pack talk on the tailgate is like ah oh, it's just the fucking bike companies trying to make some new standard this
1: year so we got to go buy oh, yeah no and listen to be fair I was one of those guys that when I first heard about it I was just like well this makes no sense but now you know after some retrospective um, I mean I I can't I can't speak to what the rest of the industry is thinking uh, I can tell you from the wheel side how this has directly affected us so um, if you remember when Boost first launched on bikes. Uh, we had barely started getting into the two, what we were doing, a lot of bikes were two by 11. So from the gearing standpoint, and usually the tallest cassette that you had, maybe was a 40, probably was a 36. Um, Going to a one by drivetrain really started, when people started looking at one by drivetrains, that's where they started looking at, okay, how can we get more gearing that's gonna have a good chain line into that rear end of that bike and they also started looking at axle tracking on bikes as far as the rear ends were concerned and so they realized that by spacing out that rear end you could get more tire into the frame you could actually get more travel depending on your your linkage on a mountain bike you get more travel out of the frame but you actually end up adding gears to that rear end by getting a more consistent chain line so by running that one by ring in the front 32 34 and then having a range like I mean with SRAM Eagle you can get a 10 like a 1051 which is just a a crazy range of gearing Um, I think that boost allowed bikes Particularly on the mountain bike side to become more of a quiver killer It became something that you didn't need to have a specific downhill bike or a specific trail bike or a specific cross-country bike you're able to have a bike that you could tune with this gearing range to where you could ride in um, you, could, you could use that same component and you could put it on a fat bike and you could go ride in snow at three and a half PSI, or you could put it on uh, a Santa Cruz Bronson and you could pedal up and at the same time get rowdy on the way down. I think a lot, not everybody, you know, not everybody shuttles, a lot of people like to ride. So um, also knew that that tires, were, I, I feel like a lot of tire manufacturers were were being held back from the tread perspective by the confines of the limitations of the sizing in the frame. And so they knew from doing research on, on how tire tread hooks up um, and, and also the ranges in the PSI that, you know, if the biggest tire you can squeeze in the back of a bike is 2.35 or 2.4, you're going to be limited in the amount of available tread that you have there. So that makes you change your siping. That makes you look at the amount of space that you have between each tread. So with having boost and having a little bit wider space, now you can have a little bit wider rim. Now you can have a little bit wider tire. So um, I mean, who here has ridden a dirt motorcycle bike that has a 2.1 tire on it like a like a dirt bike like a yz80 no you look okay. at motorcycle tires that have a lot of power and a lot of suspension a lot of torque and they got big tires on them so um at least from the mountain biking side of things i think boost has been a good addition because it's it's allowed us to simplify our drivetrains but it's also really allowed us to expand the amount of available tread and tire that's available And it's also allowed us to make wheels a little bit wider, so you're able to maximize that tread uh, much more so than we were with with rims that were 19 and a half millimeter internal widths. So um, that's where I've seen it directly affecting it, and I think it's actually a good thing. Is is it just allows us more more available traction? Our our tires get to become a tool for mountain bikers again, um, and and you're not limited by them anymore. So that's where I think Boost has, has made a positive impact. Look, I still have a bike that I love to ride. That's 142 spaced in the back, and you know, but I understand its limitations. Uh, But I also have a bike that's got a boost rear end, and I tend to reach for that one more than I do anything else because I like riding that two point. I like riding that bigger tire in the back. So
0: I I can always say, you know, the best bike that to ride is the one you're on, right? Yeah. And I can also say that, you know, in the '90s when I was riding a fully rigid mountain bike i i had just as much fun as i have today on my my freaking badass bronson over there yeah. but um but there is definitely there, there can be a lot of changes in how how much fun you have or how comfortable that ride is or how reactive that bike is and and those are the things where you're like it's just it, it really like blows my mind how much this industry has changed in the amount of time yeah. that it has and it seems like Lately, it seems like we're on that same curve that like computer systems are. You know, it's just like things are changing so fast.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I, I went to an event last year where you know the bikes had to be at least 25 years old. Uh, it was a mountain biking event, and the bikes had to be at least 25 years old in order for you to compete in this event. And and the the overall sentiment at the end of the event was like, Thank God we don't have to ride these things anymore. And I mean, they I mean, and these were they were great bikes, they were you know, some sweet looking Richie's there. There were some, you know, OG WTBs. There were some great Bridgestones. But every, most of my circle, at least, we all came away with was like, wow, that was fun. It was rad. I forgot how bad Canty's. Will not stop, you know. I forgot, you know, just the overall long top tubes and you know long stems <laughs> and the positions and the bar ends and stuff like that. But we all kind of came away from it going like, man, it's a great thing we got out of the '90s with our lives not having broken necks or, or back pain, and, and and thank God we don't have to ride bikes like this anymore. So yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's yeah. like yeah. anything else. I mean, nobody nobody drag races a Model T because those cars were super limited and super capable, but. We all have an appreciation from where the automobile industry came from. We're just glad we're not there anymore. So I feel the same way about the bike industry.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's funny you said that about the brakes. I had a, a buddy of mine that had, had an older bike, and and he had never been on hydraulic brakes before. And we were sitting on top of one hit some hill one day, and I was like, yeah, let's just switch bikes, dude. And he's like, oh, okay, cool. You sure? I'm like, yeah, dude, go ahead. Jump my bike, man. So we're fucking hauling ass down this trail, dude, and we're and I'm just I'm just on his fucking ass, right? You know, I'm just like yeah, just right on the back of his tire, riding how I always ride, right? And uh and and then all of a sudden we get to this spot where you need to slow down, and and he's like whoop right around the corner, and I yeah. yanked the brakes, and that thing didn't fucking do anything, dude. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I about shit yeah. my fucking pants, man. I'm yeah. like off into the trees. I'm like holy fuck, man. I completely forgot. How bad those brakes were, man! It was like, but yeah, it it, it is definitely like, and it it leads to why I always tell people now: like, if you want to know if you're like what a good break, or like if you want to know if your brakes are bad, buy better brakes, and then you'll find out. Because once you have better brakes, you're like. Wow, I don't even know how the hell I was doing that before. You uh, know? Let's
1: let's uh, let's let's take the our our respective respective experiences on cantilever brakes, and let's raise a high five to guys like John Tomac who used to go hella fast on bikes of that vintage with brakes that sucked that bad. But if you look at the way Johnny Tomes used to ride his bike, that dude never had his hands on the brakes. He was like yeah. one foot out aero helmet disc wheels ripping down some mountain and he was just like "Fuck it i'll hit the hay bales when i get to the finish line like that guy you know i mean but but that's the reason why he won everything he won downhill he won cross country is you know back then when you couldn't stop it was just a matter of how how much were you willing to risk it and uh you know now there's i think quite a bit more skill in what you do and and obviously the bikes we're riding are a lot better so i think it's like
0: was he in that like of guys from um rim that were all the clunker riders.
1: Oh no, that those guys were all on coaster brakes, man, or yeah, on uh, roller no roller camp. That's like that's like Charlie Kelly and uh, yeah. Gary Fisher and and those guys. Those guys I were to, even more nuts. I want to say
0: that Gary Fisher's time on freaking the Repack Trail still it's hasn't. Been,
1: yeah, like it yeah. still hasn't been beaten. Like yeah, no, he was he was those guys. You know, and and I'm sure if like, you know, you took some of the you t- you took five good level riders in the united states and we're like guys we want you to spend four or five months focusing on breaking this repack record they'd probably be able to do it fairly easily i mean those guys like charlie Carley and and gary fisher and 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 that crew from from marin back in the day you're talking about times that were set over six and seven years of and, and weekly rides like just bombing down this thing every week for six and seven years at a time and eventually you get the courage and you get the speed and you get the, Oh shit, this, this can't stop. I mean, it's like when you see downhill guys that lose their chain at the start. I mean, I remember what was it? Nico Malali, a couple years at worlds. I mean, the guy hadn't been top 15 in any world cup race all year long. We blows his chain at the start. He ends up getting fourth in the world because he stopped thinking he was just like, well shit, I got to keep speed going because I can't pedal. So I have to keep speed. I can't touch the brakes when I'm going through this rock garden and, ends up getting his best world cup result of the year. So, I mean, I I think that, you know, with guys like that, you know, you look at Gary Fisher now and you're like, there's no way that guy was fast. He's wearing a purple suit. But I mean, like, you know, you look at, look at guys like that now and you, and you realize like back in the day, they had to learn like where those limitations and, and once they, you know, they busted through those limitations, they were able to realize like, Hey man, with wide handlebars and a coaster brake bike and a double top tube, I went in a pair of Levi's jeans. I went pretty damn fast down this hill. So I have a lot of respect for what those guys were able to accomplish back in the day. But at the same time, like, I'm glad that's not my mountain bike. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, those guys definitely were amazing. So I'm the
1: jeans is dumb. Who did like who does that? You know,
0: <laughs> so um, let, let's 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 go ahead and start wrapping this thing up. I wanted to. uh ask you know is there anything in particular that that you guys are, are looking looking forward to in the future with with night composites
1: yeah so you know uh being a composites company and and you know we we really wanted to focus on uh you know for the first first years of our development we wanted to focus on where most of our our, our cumulative experience was going to best uh was going to best be uh was kind of benefit the industry and and wheels was that category um we obviously want to look at, at continuing to make great wheels, uh, continuing to respond to the industry, innovate the industry uh, with the way that we do things. But uh, we're also looking at, at expanding out of rims and, uh, and getting into uh, some other parts in the bike industry where we think uh, composites can be well represented. And, and, and with, with, our, with our lead engineer, Kevin Kwan, and, and his team, uh, aerodynamics specifically, uh, being kind of at the forefront of that, like Kevin's... Kevin's philosophy and 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 kind of approach to how he looks at aerodynamics and specifically ergonomics with things like handlebars um, I think you're gonna see some things out of out of of night composites that that might uh, Break some industry norms as far as how road bike handlebars and maybe mountain bike handlebars And maybe a few other components uh, in the next couple years So um, we're excited kind of for those next steps and seeing kind of where that goes but yeah, we, we we want to continue to have wheels be part of our foundation, but we always look forward to to the next steps. But we're we're not we're not going to sit we're not going to sit. We're going to continue to try to push forward and, and continue to get better.
0: Hey man, I, I really truly appreciate you taking the time to, to sit down and chat with us tonight. It, it's yeah, thanks super, for having me. Super fun talking to you, man. You're you're crazy knowledgeable, man. I, I hope that I can. And retain like half of what you said tonight, but um, really, really, really appreciate you coming here, man. And for those of you guys that that are out there in the ether, um, the shows every every Sunday at five PM PST. I really appreciate everybody hanging out here today, watching it live, and those of you guys later on um, watching that uh, as you're sitting in traffic or listening to it, listening to it in traffic. Um, thanks, thanks a lot to everybody, and we'll see you guys next week. Remember, it only takes a bike to be a biker. Get out and be one, bitches.